Have you ever noticed that there is a lack of confidence all around? Like, I don't know. I feel like there is a lack of confidence. I feel like people are just insecure about all kinds of things. Insecure about what the future holds, insecure about where they are or what what they're going through, their ability to to deal with a problem. I, I feel like there is more insecurity now than I can remember. Uh, now, I, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm forgetting times when I was a teenager and my voice was cracking and all that kind of stuff, because uh, that was a time of insecurity. I know, but it just feels like generally there is this general sense of insecurity of of being on shaky ground, of not really knowing when the bottom's going to fall out, but having this feeling that it's going to. Y'all, y'all notice that. Any of y'all feel that lately? Just it's that kind of sense of like, I don't really know about all this. Psalm 16 is a psalm of confidence. It's a psalm that is birthed, well, we're not exactly sure when it was birthed. We don't know what this particular circumstance was. We don't know if David had been through a crisis and was writing about it after the fact. Or if David was going through a crisis and was trying to to give himself somewhat of a spiritual pep talk, like to find confidence that he needed in the moment, or whether this was something that, that may not have even been in a time of crisis per se, but just written for someone who was. We're not exactly sure when this was written. It says that it's a psalm of David. In fact, it says uh, in, in the title that this is a miktam of David. We don't even know what a miktam is. There are several psalms, 56 through 60, uh, that are called miktams. This is another miktam, but we don't even know what that is. We don't know if that's a musical term or if that's a relationship to the type of psalm that it is or the way that it was to be done. We, we don't really know. So there's a lot of questions about the background of the psalm. But one of the interesting things about this is that it, it, when you read it, it's clear that this is a psalm of confidence. Maybe perhaps we all need a little bit of confidence. So stand with me as we read from Psalm 16. And, and hopefully God can encourage us as in put courage into us when we need it. Psalm 16. This is the word of God. And if you let it, it will change your life. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pray with me. Father, we need courage and we need confidence. So speak through your word. 
that we may do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This psalm of confidence. Where does the confidence come from? David doesn't do us a favor and give us a nice logical flow. Uh, then again, it wouldn't be poetry if he did, right? If, I mean, if David, David could have just summarized this psalm with two or three sentences and been done with it. But that's not the purpose of poetry, is it? The purpose of poetry isn't just to teach you something. It's to bring you into an experience, to feel what the author is feeling, to see what the author is seeing, to put your own situations and own experiences into the psalm so that you can see not only the, the general truth of the matter, but how it applies to you. In other words, poetry invites you to sit in the midst of it and reflect and think and vision to hear the sounds and experience what's being described. And so the psalmist doesn't just want to tell you, okay, here's how I found confidence and you can find it too. No, he wants you to experience the journey from hopelessness to confidence. And so we're going to take this psalm in some different order than what he has written. Because let's face it, uh, um, we don't, we need to, when we step back, we need to look at things in some ways a little bit more logically so that we can wrap our minds around it. So, so what we're going to do is we're, we're going to kind of move and shift some things around so that we can see how this flows. And then we're going to put ourselves into the psalm and experience what it, what, it really, what it really has to do with us. Okay? So first thing that I want you to see, there's a, there's a, a temporal order. It's kind of mixed up the way he presents it in the psalm, but that's what poetry does. So, so we're going to kind of unmix it. We're going to unscramble it for just a second. You didn't know you could unscramble things, did you? Yeah, we're going to unscramble the psalm. And that begins with God's provision yesterday. God's provision yesterday. So, so the first thing that I want us to see is that God has provided in the past. Look at verse five, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Notice the kind of language that he's using here. He's using language that reminds us of other things. That chosen portion? Wait a minute. I thought Israel was God's chosen portion. Doesn't he say that you are a kingdom of priests? A holy nation? We are God's chosen people. 1 Peter 2.9 talks about this. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, a people for his possession. We often think about this as talking about the priesthood of believers, and that's absolutely right. But we cut it off there. We miss the biggest import of it all. Because 1 Peter 2.9 continues in verse 10 and says that you may declare the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, God doesn't bring you out of the darkness into light so that you can be happy and comfortable and see well. He brings you out of darkness into the light so that you can bring somebody else out of the darkness and into the light too. Now we recognize God's the only one who can convert the soul. But we also see that we have a role to play. In other words, God doesn't just save us for our sake. He saves us for His sake, His kingdom's sake. 
And so when this says the Lord is my chosen portion, what David is recognizing is not just that you have chosen me, but you are the best that I can have. You think about the priestly sacrifices. They were not allowed. The priests were allowed to eat most of what was brought to sacrifice. But there were certain things that only God got. You don't get the fat. You don't get the choices part, the chosen portion. That belongs to the Lord. David's turning it around and saying, God, you are my chosen portion. You are the best of the best. And it's for me. I don't deserve that. Do you? He says, you are my cup. I was reminded of Psalm 23, my cup runneth over. God, you are, you are the choicest portion of meat. You are the best beverage. <laughs> this is steak and sweet tea. This is the best. Now, some of y'all are going to think sweet tea ain't the best. Okay, fine, whatever. You just put in what you want. For me, it's sweet tea. He says, you're the best. You are the very best. The creme de la creme. And you offer that to me? I mean, God gives us food and drink. He sustains our life, but he doesn't have to give us great food. He doesn't have to give us the best possible things, but he does because he gives us himself. Hmm. God's provision. You hold my lot. (laughs) When you cast lots in that day, you did it not because you were just kind of randomly choosing something, but because you recognize that God would control the outcome. He says, you hold my lot. You hold my outcome. It's in your hands. God not only provides for him the basics of what he needs, God even holds in his hand the future. Some of y'all aren't smiling yet. And and I, I just happen to think, maybe you're not getting it. The lines, he says, have fallen for me in pleasant places. You ever, you ever go to survey your property and you find out that the line just really isn't in a very good spot? And you're like, well, well, that's, it would have been much better over here or over there. Why did it have to be right here? He says, the lines have fallen for me in a pleasant place. Listen to this. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Remember when, when God divided up the land, he gave a portion to each of the tribes except for one, the tribe of Levi. Why didn't he give Levi an inheritance? Because he said, I'm your inheritance. You're going to have some cities scattered about where you're going to live and you're going to serve among the people in those places, but I'm your inheritance. David looks at his inheritance and says, I hit the jackpot. Sometimes when someone passes away and you have to go through their stuff and, and figure out all, get rid of certain things and sell certain things and you're divvying it up among, you know, there's certain things that everybody wishes they could have. Maybe it's got an emotional import to it. Maybe it's just something that's really nice or really valuable. And everybody wants to have it. And sometimes you get fights over who gets what. Sometimes it's not that bad. Sometimes, sometimes you don't have to deal with that. I think of David fighting to get this inheritance. This is mine. Nobody else gets this. This is me. He sees God as such a wonderful inheritance. And nothing else. You take all the rest of the stuff. As long as I get God, as long as I have the Lord, everything else is gravy. God's provision yesterday, man, he has provided so well, hasn't he? 
Think of all the wonderful things God has done. Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and you will be and you'll be surprised at what the Lord has done, right? I mean, just start listing them. And sometimes we start off and with things like, well, he woke me up today, and, and well, you know, I'm 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 above ground or whatever. And those are great things. But man, once we start listing them and we start seeing all the little things, one time I specifically remember God saving me from what would have been a bad wreck. I was driving. The person in front of me stopped. I wasn't looking where I was going, and I was about to slam into him. I mean slam into him, not just tap him with my bumper. I mean, I was. it was going to be bad. I don't even know how I saw it or how I responded quick enough, but the next thing I know, I am in a driveway right next to that car. More than half of my car passed their bumper, their back bumper, and I'm perfectly safe. Count your many blessings. I don't know. I don't even know. I don't even know how it happened. I really don't. There's no way I could have done that quick enough. There's no way I could have seen it and gotten off the road quick enough for that to happen. But there I was. So the lesson learned is don't ride with me driving. <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. God's provision for us has been so marvelous, so miraculous, so good. And it's that provision that brings us to, to the current day. And that, see, see, God's provision yesterday is what gives us confidence for today. You really want to have confidence today, start by looking yesterday and seeing what God did. Because that's what's going to give you confidence that God will do it again. That God will do what He needs to do today. We know God will care for us because He's been caring for us. And He's been caring for those who've gone before us. We know that God is faithful because He's been faithful. We know His faithfulness because we can read it in the Scripture. We know His faithfulness because we can see it in the lives of older people that we know. People who have lived much longer than us and people who have done many more stupid things than we've been able to do yet. And yet God has been good to them. God has been faithful to them. God has protected them. God has given them a choice portion and a cup. He's held their lot. He's given them a beautiful inheritance and He's done the same for us. And so because we recognize God's goodness in the past, we have confidence for today that He's the same God today that He's been been for the last upteen years. To put it in a country sort of way. Verses... Uh, uh, Verse 2. Just look at verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. There are two different words for Lord here. When he says, I say to the Lord, that's Yahweh. That is the personal intimate name of God. He's identifying this particular God. I'm not praying to another God. I'm not thanking another God. I'm not saying this to another God. Because there's only one God. I'm praying to Him. I'm talking to Him. I will say to Yahweh, you are my master. That second Lord isn't Yahweh. That's master. You are my master. I have no good apart from you. Now you say, where's the confidence in that? How many of us look to our boss to provide everything good? I want you to notice something. Jim owns his own business. He's not raising his hand. You know why? Because he can't give him everything good. None of us can do that, can we? We can't even do it for ourselves. How are we going to do it for somebody else? No, we have one master. 
and he does give all good things. It seems like I've mentioned that before recently. Oh yeah, James. <laughs> every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. Turns out this whole Bible thing, like they're all talking to each other. This is one big conversation where everybody is talking about the nature of God. And so when you see these connections in Scripture, it's on purpose. Note them down. Think about how these things interact. And you'll get a much more beautiful view of God. So here's, here's, you are my Lord. You are my master. You are the one in charge. I have no good apart from you. I think that means something else too. I think that also means I'm certainly not good apart from you. There's nothing good in me. There's no good thing that I have access to apart from you. And there's nothing good within me apart from you. It's a recognition that, man, I, I would screw this up if it was up to me but it's not up to me. Verse seven, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. This is right on the hills of talking about that beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me. The language here is a little bit funky, but when he says my heart instructs me, he's talking about God within the conscience, directing him in the ways that he goes. So it's not just that he's reading God's word, and doing only what God says. It's God's Spirit applying the Word to His life. And so now, not only do you have the instruction from the book, you also have God's Spirit teaching you how that instruction applies in your particular circumstance. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. God is so good that if you just listen to Him, you won't, you'll avoid the screw-ups. If you'll just do what He wants you to do, You'll just follow his advice, his counsel, his wisdom. Then you too can live with confidence. Because it's not based on you, is it? Yeah, I have to do what God expects of me. I play a role in this. But it's not up to me. It's up to God. By the way, this confidence comes through the community of believers. Verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. He doesn't put this outside of the context of a community. He puts it within the community. In fact, the reason this psalm is in the Psalms is because this psalm was designed to be sung in community. This psalm was designed to be sung by a whole group of believers together. And I got to be honest with you, sometimes you're going through stuff that I'm not going through. And sometimes I'm going through stuff you're not going through. And man, we can help each other a lot, can't we? We can help remind each other of the goodness of God. To remind what God has done in the past. When we give testimonies, it's not just for us to brag or us to come up with who's got the best story. It's for us to encourage one another that God is faithful. When we, when we talk about the things we're struggling through, when we, when we talk about the sins that we're wrestling with and, and, and seeking to overcome, we're praying for one another to forgive one another of, of things that we do to each other and, and to offer that offer of forgiveness that comes from God. That's something we do together because it's a ministry that he's given us. God puts this in the context of community because we need one another. I know I'm, I'm, I'm standing on this soapbox a lot lately, but we need to understand that the church is not a meeting and it's not a place where the meeting happens. It is the people that are meeting. And it's those people, whether they are currently meeting or whether they just met or whether they're about to meet. The church is you and me together. 
As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. He, he's not saying they're perfect. That, that doesn't mean perfect. We're still on the road. But that doesn't mean <laughs> that doesn't mean that we should just give up and quit. Not only through the community do we have this confidence, we have it in spite of the abundance of idolaters. One, uh, some scholars think that David is writing this in response to temptations from syncretists. Syncretists seek to take one thing over here and one thing over here and one thing over there and a whole bunch of little things and put them all together into one. They synchronize religions together into one kind of, kind of personalized religion. I like a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that. It's like going to a buffet where you pick the food you want to eat. You don't have to, you don't just pick one plate. You don't just get one type of food. You get a little bit of everything. Whatever you want, you put on your plate as much as you want of it. That's what the syncretist thinks of religion. And, and some scholars are thinking that David is under pressure to try to synchronize his religion of Yahweh, the, the religion of the God of hosts, with the foreign religions of the nations around them. The Milcoms and, and the Tiamats and... and Various other, Amon Re and various other gods all over the place. And, and, and so what David has to say is, uh-uh, no way. I'm not going to mix this up. We, there is a pressure that you will see if you have not already seen it. If you haven't, well, you, people just don't know you're a Christian yet, okay? You will encounter this where people try to get you to give a little compromise. Now, there are certain things we can compromise on. Pews. You shouldn't have pews. Pews are old, outdated. You should have chairs. You should have nice, comfy chairs. Okay. Doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter. Some churches, they don't have anything. They don't have a building. They meet under a tree because that's where the shade is. And as the sun moves throughout the day, they move the congregation over to keep in the shade. It doesn't really matter. That's, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about compromising the gospel. Well, you know, you've got to you've got to see things in this particular perspective. Or, you know, you, you're just so close-minded to, to, to the latest things. I'm going to tell you something. There are certain things that don't matter, but there are certain things that do matter. And when it comes to certain things that do matter, those things really matter. And when they really matter, we better not compromise. There are certain things that are absolute that we cannot compromise on. Some people will say, well, you know, yeah, we can, we can kind of let, we can kind of let loose on this one thing, you know, so that we can attract more people. This isn't an amusement park. It's a church. We need to stand firm on the gospel. Now, does that mean, does that mean that we have to do things the way that they did in 1894? Not necessarily. Same gospel. Y'all would not even know what to do if you went to a first century church. Because first of all, you'd be going to somebody's house. But y'all, you wouldn't even know it. Did you know when Baptists first started? Baptists. These are Baptists, okay? This is not some crazy kind of thing out there, okay? These are Baptists. When they first started, do you realize that it took them more than 45 years to start reading the Bible in church? Why? Because they thought even by reading the words of Scripture, they would hinder the Holy Spirit. He wrote the book. See, 
it's not so much about how we do certain things. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we must stand firm on it. I'm sorry that I've sat so long on this point, but I, I, I think we really need to make clear because we are under a lot of pressure to compromise. We are under a lot of pressure to bow before the idols of our society. And we must stand firm on the gospel just as three men got thrown into a fiery furnace because they would not bow before Nebuchadnezzar's image. So we must stand firm and not bow before the images that are set up in our day. The psalmist says this in verse 4. He says, uh, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He says, I don't even want to talk about those folks. Not to mention do anything that they did. Their sorrows are going to multiply. Doesn't matter how many idolaters there are. Doesn't matter how much pressure you're under to bend the knee to the will of whatever the current fad is. We have confidence for today because we know the God in whom we have believed. And we are persuaded that he is able to keep us against that day. Sounds, sounds like a good hymn, Jim. <laughs> But it doesn't stop today. God has been good in the past. His provision yesterday gives us hope for today, but it doesn't stop today. In fact, it goes on to tomorrow because it gives us hope for tomorrow. So it gives us confidence for today and hope for tomorrow. Verses 8 and 9. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Oh, me. Maybe, maybe I need to read that again. I have set the Lord always before me. But before me does not mean, well, he's in front of me, but then I get my stuff next. This is, this is right in front of my face. In other words, I have put God in my face so that I am constantly seeing him. And as my dad used to say, out of sight, out of mind. He's not going to be out of my mind because he's always in my sight. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. Why is it glad? Because I'm not going to be shaken. How do I know I'm not going to be shaken? Because God has been faithful in the past. So I can stand today with confidence and look to tomorrow with a hope that I will not be shaken because I know the same God yesterday is the same God tomorrow and everywhere in between. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. This is an interesting... Your, yours might talk about the tongue rejoicing. The, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint uh, uh, uses the word for tongue. The word actually used in Hebrew is glory, kavod. It's like saying my, my whole glory. Everything about me is rejoicing. So it's not just the tongue. It includes the tongue, but it's more than just the tongue. It's all of me. My flesh also dwells secure. Here's a guy that's found security in an insecure world. And then we come to verse 10. Now, at this point, you might be saying, wait a minute, what does this have to do with the Messiah? I thought these were the Messianic Psalms. Didn't you say that these Psalms scream Jesus? I did. Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Notice the future tense. You will not abandon. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. The words here refer to decay. Sheol is the grave. It's not heaven or hell. It's the grave. It's the place of death. Okay? Holy One see corruption. 
That's referring to decay. The word used means physical decay. Wait a minute. Messiah, though. How does this apply to Messiah? Well, I'm so glad you asked that because if it weren't for, uh, if it weren't for Peter and Paul preaching some sermons in the book of Acts, we might not make the connection so easily. But man, did they preach some sermons. We read a little bit of Peter's sermon. In other words, look back at Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. I know. We can go see David's tomb. And his body is still in there. We know for a fact this wasn't David. Verse 30, Therefore, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Every single one of us here that are up here can tell you that we saw Jesus raised from the dead. Then in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, that's confidence, that God has made him both Lord, Master, and Christ, anointed one, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Talk about sticking it right in the heart. In fact, the next verse says they were cut to the heart and asked, what must I do to be saved? You see, the fact is God did not abandon his Messiah and he will not abandon us either. You see, the Messiah is just the first in the line. The Messiah is just the one. He's the one that fulfills this psalm and through him all of us fulfill this psalm too. God did not abandon his Messiah. He did not leave him in the grave. God raised up Jesus from the dead. And because he did that, we know with certainty because of God's past provision of resurrection for his Christ, we have confidence for today and hope for tomorrow because we know that we too will be raised. And that no matter what may happen to us today, it is temporary. That resurrection is eternal. We know, brothers, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. In fact, let me read it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Yes, we may groan and we may whimper under sin today, but we know that our suffering today is only temporary and it's not a drop in the bucket compared to the glory that is to come. Paul quotes the same passage and then says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You, you talk about slavery. You talk about a lack of confidence. Someone who's putting his trust in the things that he's done. His ability to fulfill the laws of God given to Moses. That's an insecure man. There is no hope for him. Because he doesn't know, have I been good enough? Have I done enough good to offset the bad? Talk to a Jehovah's Witness and ask him, how do you know when you've done enough, they'll tell you they can't know. In fact, most of them will tell you I haven't and I probably won't because there's just too few that'll get in. 
There is no confidence whatsoever apart from Jesus Christ. John Calvin put it this way. He says, The unhappy restlessness of those blind idolaters whom we see going astray and running about as if stricken and impaled by madness is doubtless to be traced to their destitution of the true knowledge of God. You want to know someone who cannot be secure. It's someone who doesn't know God. They cannot be secure. All who have not, he continues, their foundation and trust in God must necessarily be often in a state of irresolution and uncertainty. And those who do not hold the true faith in such a manner as to be guided and governed by it must be often carried away by the overwhelming floods of errors which prevail in the world. You know what he's saying? You can't be secure apart from Christ. And it's because of that, because of what Messiah has done, because God has an abandoned Messiah, that the psalmist looking forward to that day maybe even not even realizing the full import of what he's saying, but knowing that he has confidence from what God has done in the past to live today for him and hope for the future, to know that it's in God's hands, that he could say in verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's not just saying you're going to treat me hunky-dory. He's saying, because of what you've done, I can live confidently today knowing that my future is secure. Do you have that confidence? Do you have that confidence? Or is that a pipe dream for you? I know where you can find it. In the resurrected Son of God, you can have confidence. God didn't abandon him. He won't abandon you either. The question is, will you trust him? Pray with me. Father, may we trust you completely and wholly. May we lay aside everything that keeps us from you, everything that blocks our way, everything that we treasure, that we hold dear, everything that we just don't know if we can let go. Father, loosen our grip, open our hands. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Father, help us to cling to you and trust you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you will do. May it be ever more true in us. In Christ's name, amen.